Pray with me, Father. Whoa, I'm about to fall. That is our prayer that that you would bring us into your conviction that would meet us with your love. That you would just shine a light on us that we might see ourselves as you see us. Both in all that is off, all that is unright, unwell, sick. But more importantly, the way you see beloved when you see us. The way you see in Christ In us, you see a beloved child of God, son and daughter of God. And I pray, Lord, that this morning we would not hide from you. We would not try to cover ourselves with fig leaves as they did in the garden. But we would just let the, the great physician of our soul do the deep work that needs to be done in our hearts. So do for us what we can't do for ourselves, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. Can we give Eddie a hand? Thank you. I was, uh, I was not ready to stop listening to your sermon, Eddie. So um, let's see. Uh, if you could just give me one second. Um, I need to figure out how to get this. Hey, Eddie, maybe you could help me out here. Okay. <laughs> Yeah, give Eddie another hand as he fixes this. He'll get the PowerPoint working, and, uh, and we'll be on, on the road here, okay? Well, this is uh, the second in our um, sermon series uh, through Lent, the Lent sermon series we're in called World on Trial, World on Trial, and it's, uh, it's a series through the, don't mind that yet, <laughs> but it's a series through the trial of Jesus Um, and ultimately the judgment and execution of Jesus, which will lead us, of course, to Easter. And last week, we saw that this trial was, uh, it was something like a prophetic trap. It was a a trap for those who were bearing witness to the trial. Like Nathan's story to David about a corrupt man who abused his power, which turned out to be a story about David himself when the prophet Nathan confronted him. And, and the story turned out to be a, about David's own abusive power for, uh, against Uriah and Bathsheba. And, and the story ends with David erupting in wrath and anger and Nathan saying, you are the man. He held up a mirror and exposed David's guilt. But the trial of Jesus was more than just an oral story or more than just a parable. It was an embodied act You could call it a prophetic performative act. That's what people who write about such things call it, a prophetic performative act. It's closer to what God told Ezekiel to do in in the book of Ezekiel. God commanded Ezekiel to to, uh, make a little model city and, you you good? It's all good. Um, Excuse me, he was to make a little model city of Jerusalem and, and in that little model city, he, he, he was going, God told him he had to lay on his side for 390 days and then lay on his other side for another 40 days and prophesy against Jerusalem and against Judah. He says, he says and when you have completed these days, then 
40 days on the other side. But then he says this, and you shall set your face toward the siege of Jerusalem with your arm barred, uh, arm bared rather, and you shall prophesy against the city. And so the images of this giant I had on the PowerPoint, which you may see here in a minute, uh, it's like Goya's painting of the giant outside the city with his face turned away from the city. It's, it's Ezekiel's performative prophetic act. Remember, God told him to do this. Why would he tell him to do it? It's because he's embodying a message, and it was a message of judgment. And so his, his body laying outside this city gives the impression of a giant. It's the image of God. It's the image of a greater being that has set his face against in this case, Jerusalem, his own people. He was declaring a coming judgment was about to take place. Well, in the gospel by this point, Jesus is in the midst of, his whole life was one great performative prophetic act because he is the word of God. He is God's message to the world. And ultimately, it's a message of grace, but grace is only occasioned by our need for it. So his prophetic act reveals a message of guilt. And Jesus has set his face toward Jerusalem, not as a giant, as in that painting, but as a peasant. Not as one who is about to execute and exercise his authority and his power over the people, but as one who is about to let the people execute and exercise their power over him. And and it all comes to a head in this trial which turns out to, to be the ultimate prophetic, prof- performative act uh, in this great drama of salvation history. This is human history. It's not just an act. It's not just a drama. It, it, it is human history, but it is played out like a drama, like Hamlet's play that exposed the guilt of the audience member who was watching it. We talked about last week, his, uh, his uncle Claudius, who had killed his father to become King. Well, this trial served to expose not the guilt of the suspect, Jesus, but the guilt of the prosecution, the prosecutors. And, and in doing so, exposes the innocence of Jesus, who ends up being unjustly condemned to death, so that when God raises him from the dead, Jesus himself is vindicated by the judge. Jesus himself is justified. All his claims, all his deeds, all his words, all his acts, everything he said was vindicated as true, as righteous, as good by the judge. And so this whole trial that the people think they're taking Jesus under their control is really serving to play into God's hand, showing that he is under, he has this whole process under his control. And the resurrection is proof of that. But we're getting ahead of ourselves, aren't we? (laughs) It's not Easter yet. We have to pass through the crucifixion. So Matthew uh, uh, 26. Uh, Eddie says he's this close. Praise God. But Matthew 26, remember last week, uh, we were in the Sanhedrin. Uh, this is, it was the Jewish court, essentially. All the Jewish religious authorities, 72 members of the scribes and Pharisees, uh, came together, and it was the religious authority, and they had political authority. And we saw that they accused and, and convicted Jesus of the charge of blasphemy. 
of blasphemy. And the irony plays out, as we saw Luke points out this irony, that here God himself has come in the flesh, and we have put him on trial for a charge none other than blasphemy, which Luke says was the very means by which we become guilty of blasphemy. The trial, again, holds up the mirror, exposes the guilt of the people and the innocence of Jesus. Well, this week, we are now moving from the Sanhedrin to the Praetorium, from the Jewish court to the Roman court, Pilate's court. And Pilate's court, which is on the map that you are about to see in Jesus' name, (laughs) Pilate's court is on the edge of the city. And the, the, the image is this, the, uh, the file can't open, it's all right. But um, this might be a shorter sermon, so if so, we'll just chalk it up to God's will. God's in control, is he not? So, but they, uh, they transport Jesus' body to the praetorium, to Pilate's court. And now, remember, if you, if you remember from last week, the, the, the Jewish authorities have already gotten the, the conviction they need to sway the crowd in favor of a conviction of Jesus. They need the crowd to want Jesus crucified. And they do that by charging him with blasphemy. But now that they go to Pilate, they need a charge of something other than blasphemy because Pilate doesn't care if you blaspheme the name of the God of Israel. And so now the question becomes, is this the Messiah? Is this the promised king? Because if this is the promised king, that means this is the promised coming revolution, and the king was going to lead it. And that's what they're trying to entrap Jesus in, is this, uh, this charge and conviction that Jesus was uh, an insurrectionist, a revolutionist. He was a king who was going to come and be in conflict with this world. But as we'll see in a few weeks, his kingdom is not of this world, which means it's compatible with it. He said, if my kingdom were of this world, my people would be fighting. And what we will come to see eventually is that Jesus' kingdom spreads not by overthrowing other kingdoms, but by bringing people from all kingdoms, all tribes, all nations under the lordship, the free lordship of Jesus Christ, which is happening and has happened all over the world ever since. And it will continue uh, to, to do so. And so, um, as Jesus has, uh, Jesus in this scene we're about to read has his first interrogation with Pilate. But as this happens, Matthew gives what you could think of as three cross-examinations of witnesses in the courtroom of the human conscience. In the courtroom of the human conscience. So you can think of this You can think of the setting as, yes, Pilate's court, but we will be taken en route from the Sanhedrin to to Pilate's court through the conscience of three people who are going to be tormented by the mistakes they've made throughout this whole process of the trial, the arrest, ultimately the execution of Jesus. But it's in the courtroom of the conscience that place within our heart of hearts where we hear the voice of God. This is where God speaks to us in our conscience according to Romans chapter 2, according to to Hebrews chapter 10, that we have a law written on our hearts and our conscience bears witness to it, perhaps excusing or accusing us on the day of judgment according to the gospel, Paul says in Romans 
too. It's in the conscience that we hear the voice of God, but here's the problem with the conscience. It is also in the conscience where we hear many, many other voices. Praise God. Give Eddie another hand. He's the man. Just in time. It's okay. It's okay. It, the reason it took so long is because I took so long to give it to you. So the fault is mine. So here they are. They are in Pilate's court as a Gentile court. It is nicely pushed to the edge of the city. And, uh, and this is where the trial is going to be is going to be played out. And really, the rest of the trial will be an attempt to, to, to seek this conviction that Jesus is an insurrectionist. We're not going to get to that yet. We'll spend a lot of time with Pilate and Jesus and their interaction, but we're going to look at these three today. And what we will see is the deceptions that come from the voice of, uh, oh no, this is the wrong PowerPoint. It's all right, we'll make do with it. But this is the, vo- the, the voice of religion, the voice of the self, and the voice of the crowd. This is going to be a roller coaster this morning. So, Okay, so read with me. It's a bit of a longer passage. Uh, it's a bit of a longer passage, but I want to read. We'll start beginning in uh, verse 69 in Matthew 26. And this is just Actually, start in verse 68. This is after they arrest him, and they say to him, mocking him, prophesy to us, you Christ, who is it that struck you? Now, remember, Peter was the first one to ever confess Jesus is Christ. And now he's watching as they're mocking him, crowning him with thorns, spitting on, oh, they're not doing that yet, but they're, they're mocking him, spitting on him, hitting him, saying, prophesy to us, Christ, and here's Peter's response. Now, Peter was sitting outside the courtyard, and the servant girl came up to him and said, you were with Jesus, the Galilean, but he denied it before all of them, saying, I do not know what you mean. And when he went outside to the entrance, another servant girl saw him, and she said to the bystanders, this man was with Jesus of Nazareth. And again, he denied it with an oath. I do not know, I do not know the man. After a little while, the bystanders came up and said to Peter, certainly you too are one of them, for your accent betrays you. Then he began to invoke a curse Uh, on himself to swear, I do not know the man. And immediately the rooster crowed. And Peter remembered the saying of Jesus, before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. And he went out and wept bitterly. When morning came, all the chief priests and the elders of the people took counsel against Jesus to put him to death. And they bound him and led him away and delivered him, handed him over to Pilate, the governor. Then when Judas, his betrayer, saw that Jesus was condemned, he changed his mind. Literally, the word is he repented. He repented and brought back the 30 pieces of silver to whom? To the chief priests and to the elders, saying, I have sinned by betraying innocent blood. They said, what is that to us? See to it yourself. And throwing down the pieces of silver into the temple, he departed, and he went and hanged himself. But the chief priest, taking the pieces of silver, said, it is not lawful to put them into the treasury, since it is blood money. So they took counsel and brought with him, uh, and bought with them the potter's field as a burial place for strangers, for outsiders. Therefore, that field has been called the field of blood to this day. Then was fulfilled what had been spoken by the prophet Jeremiah, saying, and they took the 30 pieces of silver, the price 
on whom a uh, the price of him on whom a price had been set by some of the sons of Israel, and they gave them gave them for the potter's field as the Lord had directed. We're getting there. Now Jesus stood before the governor, and the governor asked him, "Are you the king of the Jews?" Now he's looking for the charge, right? Are you the king of the Jews? Jesus said, you have said so. But when he was accused by the chief priests and elders, he gave no answer. Then Pilate said to him, do you not hear how many things they testify against you? But he gave him no answer, not even to a single charge, so that the governor was greatly amazed. Now at the feast of the governor was accustomed to release for the crowd any one prisoner whom they wanted. And they had then a notorious prisoner called Barabbas. So when the... They had gathered, Pilate said to them, whom do you want me to release for you, Barabbas or Jesus, who is called the Christ? For he knew that it was out of envy that they had delivered him up, handed him over. Besides, while he was sitting on the judgment seat, his wife sent word to him, if you have a dulled conscience, get married, okay? His wife sent word to him, have nothing to do with this righteous man, for I have suffered much because of him today in a dream. Now the chief priests and the elders persuaded the crowd to ask for Barabbas and destroy Jesus. They still need the crowd on their side. So the governor again said to them, which of the uh, two, do you want me to release for you? And they said, Barabbas. Pilate said, to, Pilate said to them, then what shall I do with Jesus, whom is called, who is called the Christ? And they said, let him be crucified. And he said, why? What evil has he done? But they shouted all the more, let him be crucified. Last paragraph. So Pilate saw that he was gaining nothing, but rather that a riot was beginning. The crowd was coming out from under his control the one thing he had to avoid as the governor of this region. And so he took water and washed his hands before the crowd, saying, I am innocent of this man's blood. See to it yourself. And all the people answered, his blood be on us and on our children. Then he released for them Barabbas, and having scourged Jesus, delivered him to be crucified. The word of God. Now, I want you to notice how this text begins as it relates to Judas. So we're going to look at, we're going to look at uh, Judas, then Pilate, then Peter. But it begins with, with Judas. It says in verse 3 of, of 27 that when he, Judas, his betrayer, saw that he was condemned, he repented. He changed his mind. Now, what is not surprising about everything that has happened up to this point is that you could, you could plainly see that all the disciples have betrayed Jesus in their own way, right? So when Jesus asked, it said that someone who dips the, the bread in the cup, is that one will be my betrayer. It turns out that all of them had already dipped in the cup, but Judah, Judas was specified as the one who had a special kind of betrayal. But all of the disciples have betrayed Jesus up to this point, and that's why I think Matthew and the other gospel writers put the story of Peter before the story of uh, Judas. Because what we will find in the story of Peter is redemption, but Judas stands as a sign and a warning of what happens when you repent, but you don't turn to Jesus 
And that's what Judas does. He repents. He doesn't return to Jesus. He returns to religion, to the religious authorities. And, and it says, when Judas, his betrayer, saw he was condemned, he changed his mind. But what he failed to do was return to the only one who could forgive him of his true debt. What was his true debt? It was not simply 30 pieces of silver. That money was no good to him anymore because of his conscience condemned him. It was no good to the chief priests who ironically are worried about having blood money on their hands, the very ones that are about to crucify Jesus. It was not that debt that needed to be forgiven. It was the debt of his betrayal of Jesus. And the only one you can go to for forgiveness of betrayal is the one who you've betrayed. But he did not return to Jesus. He returned to his religious authorities who had actually conspired with him to have Jesus killed. But I want you to see that what Judas did did not preclude him from forgiveness. It did not keep him from from being uh, eligible for forgiveness. What do you have to be eligible for for forgiveness? You have to be guilty. I mean, Jesus forgave the very ones who crucified him, saying, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they do. You don't think he would also forgive Judas, the one that he loved, but the one who had betrayed him, indeed. And, And repentance is this first movement of a change of mind, a a, a turning around of your thinking about the wrong you've done because of something that you see in Jesus, something that's revealed in Jesus, something that makes your heart burn about this Jesus and what he reveals about himself and about you and about the world, about us. In fact, it's, it's what he reveals about us, this truth that's revealed in the conscience as I talked about earlier. The word in Greek for conscience, it literally means to behold as from without. It's like the experience of, you've experienced this before. It's that feeling that you are somehow seen or known from without, typically when you're violating your conscience. When you're doing something you know you shouldn't be doing or not doing something you know you should be doing. And there's this voice of the conscience that says, Say you're sorry to your wife. And, and there's a voice that responds back, I want to be right, though, you know? And, 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 but it is this sense that we have that we are seen, that we are known, that we are indeed under some kind of judgment. That's what makes humans so peculiar, is that we, we are the people who place ourselves under judgment, who constantly see ourselves in a kind of courtroom. That our actions are in some sense going to be tried. We know that at some level. We have that experience. But the Bible suggests this is not just a a, a natural moral compass, but this is the way God actually communicates with the whole human race. It's what he says in Romans 2. I've already quoted it. It's not the hearers of the law who are... Uh, uh, who are righteous before God, but the doers, even the Gentiles who do not have the written law, show that they are lawed unto themselves when they do what is written on the law because they show that their law is written on their hearts. In other words, it's not just this natural thing. It's God communicating his commands to the human race. That's what your conscience is. That's why you know there's something wrong with, with you know, everything from, from violence to murder to pornography to not forgiving your 
spouse to any number of things, you know, because the voice of God is present and active in this world. And it, it's not for you then to, to, to try to fix the problem. It's for you to say to the judge, what do I need to do to be saved? And see, the voice of the conscience, though, has been made flesh in Jesus. He is the good, the true, the beautiful. He is the way, the truth, and the life. He is all of this embodied in the person of Jesus. But, but, but what do you do when you have violated that voice? You see, all of us stand on the other side of some, any number of violations of our conscience. Does anyone have an unviolated, perfect record in their conscience? Oh, no hands. Well, look, we're all in good company then. But what we have to understand is all of those things have to be gathered up and brought before God. It's like David said in Psalm 51, against you and you alone have I sinned. (laughs) Really? What about Uriah and Bathsheba? But you understand that, that if I have failed to love my neighbor, if I have sinned against my neighbor, my first and fundamental responsibility is to God whose command I have disobeyed in failing to love my neighbor or in abusing my neighbor. It's his command that I've made, which is what makes sin against my neighbor sin in the first place. Otherwise, it's just some kind of principle of reciprocity and some kind of social moral framework. But it is not that. We've been commanded by the eternal God in the eternal word to love our neighbor and and not to, 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 to dismiss our neighbor or other our neighbor on account of self-preservation and self-love. And that's what happens. That's what happens because our, our, we start to twist our conscience to, to, to accommodate our desires, our preferences. So, but when that happens then, what do we do? We cannot turn to religion for forgiveness. Which is to say, you don't come to the church to find forgiveness, although you will find forgiveness here if you come here, because we'll point you to the one who does forgive. But you don't have to go to a priest to find forgiveness. You don't have to go to an imam to find forgiveness. You don't have to go to a temple to find forgiveness. You have to do one thing, which is to call on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Whosoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. It is, it is to him that you must take your sin and your guilty conscience because only he can free you from it. And that's the, the, the warning in this story of Judas. See, what Judas received was not forgiveness. <laughs> he, he was sent back on himself. What is this to us? Deal with it yourself. You see, this is why Jesus' first words of his ministry, right after he was baptized, filled with the Spirit, the very first words of his ministry, Mark 1, 14 and 15, it says, Jesus went out throughout Galilee preaching, the time is at hand, the, kingdom, the, the time was fulfilled, the kingdom of us is at hand, repent, but he didn't just stop with repent. Repent and believe the gospel. Believe the good news of God's forgiveness. But you see, the sad thing about Judas is that he died before he could ever hear those words spoken over him, Father, forgive them. He died before he could hear the voice of Jesus disrupt the voice of himself. And so he turned to religion and he discovered 
All, he discovered immediately what people will all ultimately discover about every false religious system, and that is the voice of religion quickly recoils back to the voice of yourself. You are left to your own merits, your own energy, your own efforts, your own righteousness, your own ability to make your way back to God. That's the voice of religion, and that's the voice that will leave you in condemnation. You cannot fix this problem that we are talking about. And, and, and so the, the voice of religion quickly read, leads to the voice of the self. As, as it says, the, the temple authorities say to Judas, see to it yourself. It's very similar to in the prodigal son when we're told that the prodigal son came to himself. And if you remember from that sermon, I told you this is not him changing his mind yet. This is not him repenting in the full sense of that word because what he will do is through his religious reasoning, that's what the self, the self wants to create a religion around its own moral thinking, its own moral reasoning. And, and, and so through his own warped judgments, he tries to return back to his father. Do you remember how? As a slave, right? My father's, my father's servants have more than enough bread to eat. Maybe he'll receive me back as one of his hired servants. And the, what has to happen for him to break free from this self-wrought religious reasoning is nothing other than the voice of the father. So he goes back, he tries to be received on the basis of the father, but the father rebukes him in the best possible way. You remember what he says? Bring out the best robe and put a ring on his finger, a family ring on his finger, put shoes on his feet. I've got to prove to this boy that he's still my son. And, and in a sense, it was a rebuke against that lie of the religious reasoning and the, of the self, which is to make our way back to God on the basis of what we can earn the worth that we can earn for him, serve him to make ourselves worthy before God. He says it doesn't work like that because the way I work is like a father. And children don't have to earn their worth before their father. And that's the message Jesus so desperately wants to get across. And unfortunately, uh, he didn't with, with Judas. And Judas is, he remains as a kind of warning to all of us. You see, the problem with the self, with, uh, with our ego, with ourself, with each of us and the way we think about ourselves, it's just not a problem we can fix. But the beginning of faith in the gospel, remember, repent and believe the gospel. The beginning of that believing of the gospel is recognizing and accepting, I can't fix myself. It is surrendering to that whole project. And that means we have to know the limits of like all of the, the self-help industry books and literature and, and all of the self-help efforts that influencers and everybody are turning us onto. Because while that all can be helpful, truly it can, the first and final problem is simply this. We are guilty before God and our souls are longing for atonement. Our souls are longing to be put back together. And that inner division of the soul, if it is not healed by Jesus, will start to manifest itself in your relationships. And it will happen in interpersonal relationships, and it will happen in relationships between nations. Every war is ultimately led by an existential need for atonement with the living God. 
who alone can bring peace in our hearts, who alone can tear down the dividing wall of hostility between neighbors and nations. And only when we all surrender to Christ, who is himself our peace, as Paul says in Ephesians 2. And so that happens, though, when, when we allow Christ to come and declare, you are guilty, and therefore receive all the grace that he pours out at the cross for the guilty, the grace that is poured out for you and for me. And so, um, uh, <laughs> yeah, we're not going to finish this sermon, but we'll finish it next week. But, but I, do, I do want you to notice what, what, is the, <laughs> what is the cure then? What is the way that we, we, we fight against this voice of accusation that is revealed through the voice of religious reason, the voice of the self? Remember what Paul said in the scripture reading that, that Eddie read, let no one deceive himself. And then he brings us all into a courtroom. Did you notice what he said? He said, with me, it is a very small thing that I should be judged by you or any human court. Why does he say any human court? He's, he's writing to the Corinthian church. They're not taking Paul to court. But I think what he's appealing to is the fact that we all kind of live our whole lives as though we're in a courtroom. <laughs> you have, a, a, you have a, a full-time prosecutor in your head, don't you? And you have a full-time defendant. A process, what do you call that? A defendant, a lawyer who's a defendant. What's that? That defense attorney. You got both of those lawyers in your head, right? One accusing you. One trying to justify you, self-justify, but God knows you need a third voice that doesn't come from your own, doesn't come from the religious authorities in the sense I'm talking about, doesn't come from the crowd, which is the voice that we're not going to get to today, but we will next week, but it comes from the voice of Jesus. He says, it's a very small thing that I should be judged by you or any human court. In fact, I do not even judge myself. Now, is it, some of you, you need to make that your life verse. I do not even judge myself, for I'm not aware of anything against myself, but I'm not thereby acquitted. <laughs> you see what he's saying? Even if you have a clear conscience, your conscience isn't God. God is God. So I'm not thereby acquitted if I might have somehow successfully justified myself in my own thinking, for I'm not aware of anything against myself. I'm not thereby acquitted. It is the Lord who judges me. Tupac was right. Only God can judge me. Again, there's like three of you who know what I'm talking about. <laughs> Jesus Christ sent the Spirit into the world to convict the world of sin of righteousness and judgment. Sin, he said, because they don't believe in me. Righteousness, because I go to the Father and those who do believe in me will receive righteousness as a gift. And judgment, because the ruler of this world is judged. The Holy Spirit has been sent into this world to invade your conscience, conscience with these fundamental truths about your sin, about Christ's righteousness and about God's judgment, which is a judgment that is going to come and repair this world. As Paul says in Acts 17, that he will come and judge the world in righteousness, which is to say a world with no more heartaches and headaches, a world where our swords are beaten into plowshares, where the lion will lay down with the lamb and there will finally be what our soul longs for, which is peace, the peace of God.
And so uh, we, will, we will return to this, uh, finish this sermon next week. In fact, we'll go through the whole PowerPoint that I was planning. <laughs> but I want to, uh, here's what I want you to notice, and, and we, we'll return with a conversation with Pilate. Uh, between Jesus and Pilate. But here's what I want you to notice. I want you to notice that in every case, each story we read, the conviction didn't begin with a revelation about our own unrighteousness. It didn't begin with a, a revelation about what's wrong with us. Remember, it said about Judas, when he saw that they had condemned an innocent man, a righteous man. And when Pilate's wife went to Pilate, she said to him, have nothing to do with this righteous man, this innocent man. You see, the, the con- as Karl Barth says, the conscience filled by the Holy Spirit is the perfect interpreter of life. And the first word of the Spirit to your conscience is not, you are unrighteous. It is that Christ is righteous. It is, very, it is like just this week. I told Sam I was going to tell this story. You have to understand, Sam and I are very different people. And when I walk into Pastor Sam's office, I have to confess that I'm a little jealous and envious because everything is so orderly. <laughs> everything is pristine. I walk up to his desk, which is a standing desk, so it's here on me. And I'm like... <laughs> I'm so jealous, not only because I can't reach the top, but also because it just is so inviting. It makes me want to come work in his office, but he would never let me do that because I'd destroy it like mine. If you go into my office, there's a, 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 a room, and then you can go into the, the inner sanctuary, okay, where, where all this stuff really happens. Well, Sam, the other day, he comes in with one of his spreadsheets, right? And he comes in, he walks in my office, and without even asking, he just walks into the Holy of Holies behind the curtain where I am, and not, he's not supposed to come here, right? This is where I'll be revealed like the Wizard of Oz. No, I'm just kidding. But he walks in, and he starts talking about something for a board meeting that I asked him to prepare, and I just interrupted him because it was, it was like God turned a light on for what I was trying to explain about this, that con- our, the Holy Spirit tells us Christ is righteous first. And I just interrupted him, and I said, Sam, your presence makes me feel all out of order. <laughs> you see, it wasn't until I was in the presence of righteousness that my unrighteousness was revealed. That's the highest compliment I'll ever give Sam, okay? And he's not here to accept. I won't tell him I did. We'll see if he listened to the sermon to get it. So... But do you see, the, the, the point is this, <laughs> you need to be freed from trying to look within yourself for solutions to your problem. And, and the, the, the message of the gospel, it really is captured in that song, turn your eyes upon Jesus, look full in his glorious face and the things of this earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his glorious face. I think I screwed that up. It was grace and face. You know what I mean. You see what I'm saying, though? It is not. It is you, you have the invitation to be freed from all of those, those self-accusations and trying to defend yourself and trying to make a case for yourself with your defense attorney because that pr- prosecution is going day and night. The Bible says that the accuser of the brothers, the brethren, the, the, the family of God stands before the throne of God night and day, but they overcome him 
the accuser by the blood of the lamb and the word of our testimony and not loving our lives even unto death. And that means that you are invited into, not to try to defend yourself. Satan will never use sins you're not guilty of to accuse you, right? He has plenty of source material. He doesn't need to lie about that. He will throw in your face your sins, and you can throw into his face the grace of God, the cross of Christ. And then you can say, all of my sins have been nailed to the cross. The debt of record that stands against us has been nailed to the cross, binding all of our sins to Jesus and disarming the principalities and powers that accuse us. Get in our head and have us accusing ourselves. And so that's the invitation. If I could have the worship and prayer team come forward, I just want to read these words of scripture over you. I want to read this just from 1 John, and I just want, I, want to, I want you to know that as it says in 1 John later, 1 John 4 or 5, it says, even when your heart condemns you, we know that God does not condemn us. Even when our conscience condemns us, there is a reality bigger than us that transcends us that, that is the anchor of our soul. That is what we latch on to. It is the horizon that we, we, we look beyond and see in it the living God who's come to us in the person of Jesus Christ, and it's his voice that matters in the end. Repent and believe the gospel, which comes into your conscience and sounds like this. This is the message we have heard from him and proclaimed to you that God is light, and in him there is no darkness at all. If we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus Christ cleanses us from all sin. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves. Let no one deceive himself, Jesus said. Remember, we deceive ourselves and the truth of God is not in us if we say we have no sin. But if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar and the word is not in us. My little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. He is the propitiation. He literally, it means the mercy seat. He is the mercy seat of the temple of God's presence. He is where mercy is found in God. And not only for our sins, but for the sins of the whole world. Living God, would you come into our hearts, into our minds, into our conscience? Will you tell us the truth of our guilt so that you can free us in the truth of your grace? We pray this in the name of Jesus, by the strong power of Jesus in the voice of the advocate. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. As you go, well, first a reminder uh, for all the volunteers, please stay back. It'll be half, over half of the people in here, I think. Uh, please stay back and uh, let's feast together. And uh, as, as you go this week, I'll just, I want to just leave you with this word over you and and pray that God would let his word, what is true from his mouth, his voice, not mine, but from him, would sink into your heart so that you can hear, as Paul says, 
The word is near you in your mouth and in your heart, the word of faith that we proclaim. That's what happens every week as we gather in our small groups, in the worship gathering. We, we hear the word of, of God, and throughout the week, he lets it sink into our hearts. The word is near you, the word that in your mouth and in your heart, the word of faith that we proclaim, because if you confess with your mouth, mouth that Jesus is Lord and you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Mm -hmm. For with the confession of the mouth, one believes and is saved, and believing in the heart, one believes and is justified. And, and for scripture says, everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. There is no discretion between Jew or Greek, for the same Lord is the Lord of all, bestowing riches on all who call on him, because whosoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Call on the name of Jesus this week. Bless you. Bless you.